From New York, this is Democracy Now! Let me be clear. This bill would be the most significant legislation in history to tackle the climate crisis and improve our energy security right away. President Biden's hailing a Senate bill to address the climate emergency. The deal emerged after Senator Joe Manchin reversed himself and said he will support the legislation around a climate emergency. We'll speak to a professor who advised Senate Democrats. Then we'll look at how a synagogue president turned congressman is being targeted by an APAC super PAC ahead of next week's Democratic primary in Michigan. We'll talk to Congress member Andy Levin. It's not acceptable as a moral Jewish person to support people who are undermining our democracy. And so it's not about getting endorsed by APAC. It's about taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from them and then also taking money from other corporate PACs that also are supporting insurrectionist Republicans. And we'll look at two threats facing the nation's imprisoned population this summer, intensifying heat waves and monkeypox. Now that the first case of monkeypox has been detected in an American jail, we're faced with a real possibility that this entire outbreak in the United States may be transformed into something that is much greater and more deadly than need be. We'll speak with the former chief medical officer for New York City's Correctional Health Services and with the first formerly incarcerated reporter at the Marshall Project. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden's urging the Senate to swiftly pass the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. After West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin's surprise announcement this week that he would support a budget reconciliation package to combat the climate crisis while lowering health care costs. The legislation represents just a fraction of the more than $3 trillion sought by progressive Democrats in 2020. But Biden said Thursday the deal would still be the most important climate legislation ever passed by Congress. This bill is far from perfect. It's a compromise. But it is, it's often how progress is made, by compromises. This bill would be the most significant legislation in history to tackle the climate crisis and improve our energy security right away. The package includes nearly $370 billion in new spending on climate and energy over the next 10 years, but environmentalists warn it contains poison pills for the climate, like a requirement that the Interior Department open up millions of acres of public lands to new oil and gas development as a prerequisite to installing any new solar or wind energy. The Center for Biological Diversity said in a statement, quote, the new leasing required in this bill will fan the flames of the climate disasters torching our country, and it's a slap in the face to the communities fighting to protect themselves from filthy fossil fuels. We'll have more on the emerging legislation later in the broadcast. In eastern Kentucky, at least eight people are dead after torrential rains brought flooding and mudslides to the region, washing out bridges and destroying hundreds of homes and businesses. Rescue crews and inflatable boats fanned out to search for survivors, some of whom fled to their rooftops as floodwaters rose around them. On Thursday, up to seven inches of rain fell on parts of Kentucky, and Governor Andy Bashir said the death toll could continue to rise. In a word, uh, this event is devastating. 
And I do believe it will end up being one of the most significant uh, deadly floods that we have had in Kentucky in at least a very long time. Meanwhile, millions of U.S. residents faced heat advisories again this weekend, including the Pacific Northwest, where temperatures rose to triple digits again Thursday. The House of Representatives sent the White House a $280 billion bill to support U.S. semiconductor industry. Once signed by President Biden, the CHIPS Act will provide more than $76 billion in subsidies to corporations that produce semiconductor chips in the United States. All but one House Democrat voted in favor of the bill on Thursday. The vote came after Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders blasted the legislation as corporate welfare for a handful of wealthy high-tech companies. Elsewhere on Capitol Hill, military veterans and their supporters erupted in anger Thursday after Senate Republicans blocked a bill to aid former U.S. service members poisoned by toxic waste. The bill would require the Department of Veterans Affairs to remove the burden of proof from vets who say their health problems are related to the Pentagon's use of toxic burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan. One On Wednesday, Pennsylvania Republican Senator Pat Toomey, who's set to retire at the end of the year, blocked the bill after it initially received 84 votes in the 100-seat Senate. That prompted an angry response from comedian John Stewart, a leading advocate for veterans. Senate's where accountability goes to die. These people don't care. They're never losing their jobs. They're never losing their health care. Pat Toomey didn't lose his job. He's walking away. God knows what kind of pot of gold he's stepping into to lobby this government to on more people. I'm used to all of it. But I am not used to the cruelty. In eastern Ukraine, Russia's military says an attack by Ukrainian forces using a U.S.-made advanced missile system has killed 40 Ukrainian prisoners of war and wounded dozens of others. Ukraine denied its forces carried out the attack in separatist-held territory and instead blamed Russia for the strike on a prison housing the POWs. Meanwhile, United Nations officials say they're hopeful that a U.N. and Turkey broker deal to safely export grain from blockaded Ukrainian ports could begin as early as today. The White House says President Biden spoke with Chinese leader Xi Jinping by telephone for over two hours Thursday at a time of rising tensions between Washington and Beijing. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said the talks were aimed at restoring the U.S.-China relationship. The pair reportedly discussed climate change, human rights, counter-narcotics and Russia's war in Ukraine. And then on Taiwan, uh, President Biden underscored that the United States policy has not changed and that the United States strongly opposes unilateral efforts to change the status quo or undermine peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. After the call, China's foreign ministry said she warned Biden over U.S. support for Taiwan, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's planned visit to the island in August. She was quoted as saying, quote, those who play with fire will perish by it, unquote. West Virginia's Republican-led state Senate is debating a bill today that would ban nearly all abortions while making abortion care a crime punishable by up to 10 years in prison. West Virginia's House of Delegates approved the bill Wednesday after hearing testimony from 90 members of the public who were allotted 45 seconds each. This is Addison Gardner, the youngest speaker. 
I'm 12 years old. I attend Buffalo Middle School. I play for varsity volleyball, and I run track. My education is very important to me, and I plan on doing great things in life. If a man decides that I'm an object and does unspeakable and tragic things to me, am I a child supposed to carry and birth another child? Am I to put my body through the physical trauma of pregnancy? Am I to suffer the mental implications? A child who had no say in what was being done with my body. Some in here say they are pro-life. What about my life? Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito has made his first public comment since authoring the majority opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which struck down Roe v. Wade. Alito spoke July 21st at the Notre Dame Religious Liberty Summit in Rome in remarks that were made public Thursday. I had the honor this term of writing, I think, the only Supreme Court decision in the history of that institution that has been lambasted by a whole string of foreign leaders <laughs> who felt perfectly fine commenting on American law. One of these was uh, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but he paid the price. In June, Boris Johnson called Alito's majority opinion striking down Roe v. Wade a backward step for women's rights. Alito's other critics include Prince Harry, French President Emmanuel Macron, and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who called the ruling overturning abortion rights horrific. The United States Coast Guard says at least five people drowned and 66 others were rescued off the coast of Puerto Rico on Thursday after they were forced off their boat by human smugglers. Most of the survivors are Haitian. They were handcuffed by Customs and Border Protection officials as they were taken into custody. Their rescue came just days after 17 Haitian migrants died off the coast of the Bahamas when their boat capsized. This week, rival gangs in Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince, continued to wage intense gun battles in the neighborhood of Cité Soleil, where the U.N. warns the number of killings this year is fast approaching 1,000. In Veracruz, Mexico, scores of migrants who were left by human smugglers in an abandoned freight trailer on the side of a highway had to break their way out to avoid suffocation. On Wednesday, people at a nearby gas station discovered the migrants after they bashed holes in the trailer's roof. Medics treated survivors for knee and ankle injuries. We were told there were close to 400 immigrants traveling in the trailer. When they started to feel suffocated, they broke through the roof of the trailer and most of them jumped out. That is why most of the injuries we treated were ankle and knee fractures. The migrants are from Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador. This comes a month after 53 migrants from Central America and Mexico died in San Antonio, Texas, after they were left in a sweltering, abandoned trailer. In Massachusetts, workers at a Trader Joe's outlet in the town of Hadley have become the first to organize a union at the grocery chain. Workers voted 45 to 31 to join the newly formed Trader Joe's United, overcoming what organizers said was a relentless union-busting campaign. Trader Joe's workers in at least two other states have also launched union organizing drives. And in Canada, indigenous protesters confronted Pope Francis Thursday as he prepared to celebrate Mass inside Canada's National Shrine in Quebec City. The protest 
came as the pontiff continued his tour of Canada to apologize for the Catholic Church's role in Canada's brutal Indian residential school system, which saw an estimated 150,000 Indigenous children taken from their families and placed in distant boarding schools, where they often suffered sexual and physical abuse. More than 4,000 children died. On Thursday, two Anishinaabe protesters unfurled a large banner reading, Rescind the Doctrine, just as Pope Francis was starting Mass. Their sign was a reference to the 15th-century doctrine of discovery used by the Catholic Church to justify the European colonization of indigenous lands. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at how APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, is spending millions of dollars in primary races to defeat progressive Democrats. In Michigan, where voters go to the polls on Tuesday for a primary election, APAC has spent over $3 million targeting Andy Levin, a two-term member of Congress. Levin is a former president of his synagogue. He comes from one of the most prominent Jewish political families in Michigan. His father, Sander Levin, served in Congress, and his uncle, Carl Levin, was a U.S. senator. Congressmember Andy Levin is a self-described Zionist who supports a two-state solution. But earlier this year, a former president of AIPAC described Levin as, quote, arguably the most corrosive member of Congress to the U.S.-Israel relationship. Due to redistricting, Levin's opponent in Tuesday's primary is another incumbent, Haley Stevens, who has embraced APAC support. Senator Bernie Sanders is heading to Pontiac, Michigan, today for a campaign rally with Levin and Congressmember Rashida Tlaib, who's also been targeted by outside money groups. A new PAC aligned with APAC, run by Bakari Sellers, has vowed to spend over $1 million to defeat Rashida Tlaib, who's the first Palestinian-American woman to serve in Congress. Congress. This all comes just weeks after APAC spent nearly $6 million in Maryland to defeat former Democratic Congressmember Donna Edwards in her primary. Other progressives who lost after being targeted by APAC include Nina Turner in Michigan and Jessica Cis in Ohio and Jessica Cisneros in Texas. One prominent critic of APAC's actions has been Peter Beinert. He's editor-at-large of Jewish Currents. He recently appeared on Democracy Now! So what this play is really about is trying to create a whole new generation of younger Democrats in Congress who will toe the APAC line on Israel-Palestine, also, in many, many cases, also take a kind of more pro-corporate position and therefore blunt the, the trend that we were seeing towards the Democratic Party moving in a more progressive direction. We go now to Michigan, where we're joined by Democratic Congress member Andy Levin, who's joining us from his home in Bloomfield Township. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Congressman. In a moment, we're going to talk to you about your arrest, or was it two arrests, around abortion rights, as you stood outside the Supreme Court. But first, I want to go to this issue of your primary on Tuesday. How many millions of dollars have been spent by APAC PAC? And this is new for APAC, although they have the word PAC in APAC. They've actually just recently established a super PAC. Right. They, they recently established a regular PAC and a super PAC. But between the money they've bundled and the money in the, the dark money they're spending independently, we I believe it's up over $4.2 million, Amy, uh, just to try to— take down a, a progressive 
Jewish Congress person who I don't know if you remember, but I think I first appeared on your show when I created and ran Union Summer in 1996. So I'm a little bit unusual as a member of Congress. Yeah, that was the first year of Democracy Now. Um, so wow. of that that amount of money. So we're talking about a quarter of a century ago. But that amount of money you're talking about around four million dollars. How much overall is being spent on your primary race? Well, I think uh, we're being outspent about five to one. And I believe two thirds of the money being spent on the other side is not money that my opponent has raised in, you know, campaign contribution contributions, but it's independent expenditures. Well, and also it's worth pointing out that Emily's list is partnering with um, with APAC on this, even though I've been endorsed by Cecile Richards, uh, by Heather, Booth, former head of Planned Parenthood, by the leading yeah. And, and by the leading uh, abortion care provider in our region. Um, but and, you know, Emily's list is now backed by a former SCIU local union president, and they're attacking the person in the race who helped uh, hundreds of women of color join SCIU for a better life. So it's kind of ironic. Well, I want to turn to your debate in May when your opponent, Congressmember Haley Stevens, defended her endorsement by APAC. Allow me to say I've been endorsed by the American Israel Public Affairs Committee alongside Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, Majority Leader Sandy Hoyer, Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, several dozen members of the House Progressive Caucus. And and certainly that endorsement was based on my belief in a strong U.S.-Israel relationship. I've also been so proud to be endorsed by the Jewish Democratic Council of America, as well as several other pro-Israel groups. She didn't answer the question. The question is about giving back money from APAC, giving back money from other PACs that support insurrectionist Republicans. Y'all, this is not like some gotcha thing in a political campaign. Our democracy is hanging by a thread. It's not, I'm going to speak Jewishly here as, you know, it's not halakhically acceptable. It's not acceptable as a moral Jewish person to support people who are undermining our democracy. And so it's not about getting endorsed by APAC. It's about taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from them and then also taking money from other corporate PACs that also are supporting insurrectionist Republicans. We just did a segment on Donna Edwards' race in Maryland, where the issue of Israel in Palestine is hardly raised, uh, even by the APAC super PAC in ads. They raise other issues. Is that the case in your district? Are people aware of this outside money? Absolutely. It's the same, Amy. They are not talking about this. They may do some micro-targeting because maybe about 8% of the electorate of this new district is Jewish, and they may do some micro-targeting at them. But uh, their ads, don't, there's a double deception here, really, Amy. One is where the money's coming from. And most of this money is not even coming from Democratic capital D sources. It's coming from Republicans and mostly Republican billionaires, like Paul Singer and Bernie Marcus and the guy who founded WhatsApp. Uh, who, who all of whom fund right wing causes are union busters or, and so forth. That's the first part of this deception. And the second part is they don't even talk about why they're giving the money. They talk about other things. So they whatever they think will be effective to make their chosen candidate win the race. So what you have here is a real threat to the Democratic Party being able to choose our own nominees that we send to the general election in November. 
this could, Amy, this could go to other issues. You could have big pharma. You could have Enbridge or ExxonMobil or tobacco companies deciding to flood the field with dark money and Democratic primaries so they get their chosen nominee. It's horrifying. So Senator Bernie Sanders is coming out to campaign for you and for Rashida Tlaib. Both of you are Michigan. She's one of two uh, Palestinian—of the first Palestinian-American women to serve in Congress. Um, is She's facing the same issue in Detroit. Yes, but I'm, I feel really confident that Rashida Tlaib will win. Uh, she's an incumbent running against a non-incumbent. 60% of the new 12th district is, is part of her current district. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really glad Bernie's coming. I'm glad he's supporting her too. But um, I think their efforts there will not, you know, are, they, they've, they're not investing in the same level because I think they know they can't succeed. Um, my race is an incumbent on incumbent primary, of course. So it's quite a different matter. That's like here in New York, Carolyn Maloney versus Gerald Nadler. The redistricting yes. led to incumbents uh, facing each other. Um, I wanted to uh, end on this issue by asking you about David Victor, the former president of APAC, uh, saying that um, he, in an email to pro-Israel donors that you are arguably the most corrosive member of Congress to the U.S.-Israel relationship. Can you talk about your stance on Israel and Palestine? You and what, Jackie Rosen, are the first two synagogue presidents to be Congress members? I don't know if we're the first two, but we're the only two current ones. She she told me that. You know, I'm I'm uh, such a out there Jewish person, <laughs> Amy. I've got mazuzot on all my doors, even the non-public ones. And um, I and you know, I love Israel and I I I love Palestine and I want Israel. I feel like after all the pogroms and the Holocaust and all the history, that the Jewish people deserve a self-determination in a homeland, and the Palestinian people certainly deserve the same. Uh, I may be the clearest Jewish voice in the House of Representatives saying that the only way to achieve a secure homeland for the Jewish people is to fully realize the political and human rights of the Palestinian people. That's principled. It's also practical. And I'm not going to back down from it, no matter how many millions of dollars they they throw at me. And I think we're going to win on Tuesday, Amy, because We've got now, Bernie's coming. Elizabeth Warren was here on Sunday. Jane Fonda was able to zoom in on Monday. We're uh, out on the doors uh, in thousands of doors we're doing and thousands and thousands of phone calls. We've got all the energy, 14 national unions, every environmental group that's endorsed in this race. Sunrise is on the doors, uh, progressive Jews, Arab Americans, Muslims. It's a beautiful coalition of all progressive forces saying, we're not going to let this dark money determine who wins this race. It's going to be the human rights champion, the democracy champion, the workers' rights champion, the champion for environmental justice. Congressmember Levin, you've been arrested, what, twice in the last week in Washington? Explain. <laughs> yeah, well, it just happened that way. Yes. Well, on Tuesday last week, I was um, arrested with 16 of my sisters from the House of Representatives in front of the Supreme Court to say we are, we don't care about Sam Alito and this right-wing cabal that's taken over the Supreme Court. We're going to do whatever it takes to protect the autonomy of women and anybody who can have a baby over their own bodies and their own decisions. And then it just happened that the next day, 
a long-planned uh, civil disobedience occurred with Unite Here, Local 23, uh, and I'm, you know, like the shop steward of the Congress, having devoted my life to labor movement. So I got arrested with them. Believe it or not, Amy, the Senate cafeteria and dining room workers joined Unite Here Local 23 almost a year ago. Not only don't they have a first contract, a first contract isn't really in sight. So we just have to fix that and change that. And I'm going to be stand with those workers until they get justice. And finally, on the issue of Michigan and abortion rights, a proposed constitutional amendment would override um, a 90 year old state law that makes abortion a felony, even in the case of rape or incest. Can you explain what this is about? Absolutely. And I've been a big backer of it um, and I'm deeply involved in it. It's called Michigan Reproductive Freedom for All. Uh, it would it, it got the most signatures in the history of ballot initiatives in Michigan. So it, hopefully it'll be on the ballot on November 8th. It would put the right to re, uh, to abortion care in our constitution, our state constitution, and therefore um, nothing but a federal ban or, you know, could could overcome that. And uh, so I feel really great about it. And we're going to we're going to get it passed here, Amy, and we're going to have the right to reproductive care in our state constitution. And 11 Democrat representing Michigan's ninth district running for reelection this fall. His primary is on Tuesday. Next up, President Biden's hailing a Senate bill to address the climate emergency now that Senator Manchin has said he'll support it. We'll speak to a professor who advised the Senate Democrats. Stay with us. by Lucy Pearl. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden's urging the Senate to swiftly pass the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. After West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin's surprise announcement this week that he would support a budget reconciliation package to combat the climate crisis while lowering health care costs. The bill represents just a fraction of the more than $3 trillion sought by progressive Democrats in 2020. But Biden said Thursday the deal would still be the most important climate legislation ever passed by Congress. This bill is far from perfect. It's a compromise. But it is, it's often how progress is made, by compromises. This bill would be the most significant legislation in history to tackle the climate crisis and improve our energy security right away. 
The package includes nearly $370 billion in new spending on climate and energy over the next 10 years. But environmentalists warn it contains poison pills for the climate, like a requirement that the Interior Department open up millions of acres of public lands to new oil and gas development as a prerequisite to installing any new solar or wind energy. The Center for Biological Diversity said in a statement, the new leasing required in the spill will fan the flames of the climate disasters torching our country, and it's a slap in the face to the communities fighting to protect themselves from filthy fossil fuels, they said. We'll have more on the emerging legislation later in the broadcast, but we're joined right now by Leah Stokes, who advised Senate Democrats on the bill, associate professor of environmental politics at University of California, Santa Barbara, researcher on climate and energy policy. It's great to have you back, Professor. What happened? I mean— uh, the shockwaves that went through Washington when the Democrat who was um, torpedoing this bill turned around and said he would support it. We're talking Joe Manchin. What happened? You were working behind the scenes. Well, you know, it was really shocking. And I think the last two weeks when we thought the entire deal had fallen apart, they were really painful, you know, facing the prospect of absolutely no climate uh, investments out of D.C. yet again. We're talking about decades of attempts to do this. It was devastating. We just do not have another decade left to wait if we really want to be on track to cut carbon pollution in half this decade, which is what scientists say we need to do and what President Biden has pledged to do. But it turns out that, um, you know, a lot of the public work saying that what Senator Manchin was doing was not OK, whether that was folks in West Virginia arguing that he needed to make sure that former mine workers had the right health care support or, you know, cl climate activists saying we cannot torch the planet, not just for all of us, but also for Senator Joe Manchin's grandchildren. I think that that pressure maybe got to him a little bit and he didn't want to have his legacy be one of climate destruction. So lay out exactly what has passed and what didn't. Uh, not It hasn't been voted on yet, but what is in this <laughs> I like bill. I your thinking, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> what is in this bill and what isn't. Yes. So, you know, the bill passed the House of Representatives last fall and included $555 billion in clean energy and climate investments. The good news is that a lot of that has remained intact in this final Senate version. So we're clocking in at $369 billion. And a lot of the changes between the two bills are mostly shaving, you know, the amount for a specific program, you know, tweaking the language, uh, but not getting rid of wholesale programs. There were some full losses, such as the Civilian Climate Corps that the Sunrise Movement championed, but a lot of the provisions that we needed are still in there. So how can we break that down for folks? Well, first, there's a bunch of consumer-facing incentives to reduce energy bills. It turns out that 41% of inflation right now is being driven by fossil fuels. So what this bill would do is make it cheaper to get an electric vehicle, a heat pump, which is a really efficient electric appliance that both heats and cools your home. And for low and moderate income folks, it would even help get, um, you know, an induction stove, which is, again, a really important piece of technology to cut carbon pollution and energy bills at the same time. So we know that if folks adopt these technologies that the bill is going to make cheaper, it will actually save them $1,800 a year in their energy bills. That's according to an analysis from Rewiring America. And, you know, that's not surprising because it costs about a dollar a gallon to drive an EV versus about 4 or $5 a gallon for a gas-powered 
powered car. So we're talking about really delivering a lot of savings with these clean energy technologies for everyday Americans. And I can get into the other details, but I'll just pause there because it's a really big bill. So I don't want to overwhelm you, Amy. Well, Professor Stokes, um, what about environmentalists warning of the bill containing poison pills like this quote Mm -hmm. I just read from the Center for Biological Diversity, who said the new leasing required in the bill will fan the flames of the climate disasters torching our country, a step, a slap in the face of communities fighting to protect themselves from filthy fossil fuels. Yeah, like all bills that potentially become law, it's not perfect, right? And we cannot let perfect be the enemy of the good here. Uh, You know, these lease sales are very problematic. The basic idea is that they require a minimum amount of lease sales every year. Uh, I looked at what the historic level of sales were, both for onshore and offshore, and it's about a quarter um, lower when it comes to offshore lease sales than the historic 10-year average before the pandemic, and um, about half of the onshore lease sales. So, you know, it's still lower than what we've been seeing on average under the Obama administration, the Trump administration, but it's not ideal. We do not want to be doing required lease sales. There are, however, some other changes in the bill that pull us in the other direction, such as royalty rate increases. And, you know, what we're really trying to do here is reduce demand for fossil fuels by helping Americans get access to clean energy technologies that run off of electricity and not off of fossil fuels. And so what the idea will hopefully be is that we're going to reduce our demand for fossil fuels, and that will make leasing onshore and offshore less profitable. But no, this is not the bill that, you know, I would have written personally. It's going to have some bad ramifications for communities on the front lines of drilling, and that is not good. But we cannot miss the forest for the trees here. We have to be clear-eyed. We're talking about a bill that will reduce carbon pollution 40 percent below 2005 levels by 2030, which will get us 80 percent of the way to President Biden's goal and towards what climate scientists say we need to do. So it's not perfect. But, you know, these provisions, the the modeling that I've seen um, sort of preliminarily, they're going to add about one percent out of that 40 percent in the bad direction. So we can think of it as saying, for example, the good stuff is something like 10 to 20 times bigger than the bad stuff when it comes to carbon pollution. Well, I want to bring in another guest here. On Capitol Hill, six congressional staffers were arrested Monday as they held a nonviolent civil disobedience protest inside the office of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. The staffers were calling on Schumer to reopen negotiations on the bill to combat the climate crisis. We're joined now by one of those staffers who was arrested, Saul Levin, helped organize a direct action in Schumer's office. Saul, welcome to Democracy Now! Now, you're a Democratic staffer. Um, And I wonder if this could have played a role in Manchin reversing this kind of action inside Congress. Explain why you targeted not the Republicans, but, yes, the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer. Yeah, well, thanks, Amy. Um, You know, part of this action was kind of an alarm bell that we were ringing from the inside, where we were kind of trying to direct people towards the Senate Majority Leader and frankly, the president of the United States to say, these are the folks who need to be negotiating like our lives depend on passing climate policy this year, which they do. And so we've seen, you know, Senator Manchin go back and forth with industry and everything else. And we really thought that what was needed here was a boost for Senator Schumer to keep negotiating, to not get discouraged, to keep going, because we have absolutely no option. And keep in mind, there's a huge age divide here. 
Um, you know, we hope that this had an impact, but there's hundreds of congressional staffers who are doing different things to try and get this bill back to life because we're going to live through the climate crisis. We already are. Some of us are hoping to have kids, hoping, you know, I'm hoping my goddaughter is going to grow up in a livable world. And we weren't on track for that. Hopefully now we're a little bit more so. Now, Saul, um, we just spoke to your father, um, Andy Levin, um, who is running for re-election on Tuesday in the primary. Uh, he was arrested twice last week. You were arrested once. There are a lot of arrests in your family. But if you can talk about why you decided to go this far and now to identify yourself, because in letters you had to senators, initially you just used your initials. Why now come forward? Yeah, well, people, you know, many of us came forward and, and Amy, there were 17 staffers who were in the room. Um, only six ended up getting arrested. We came forward because we felt like we didn't have a choice. There are, you know, as mentioned, hundreds of congressional staffers, members of Congress who have been working for 18 months or, you know, a bit more than that to pass climate policy during these precious two years of Democrats in power. And nothing has happened. And we felt like, you know, we couldn't in good faith leave for, you know, go on vacation without passing climate policy. And so the first step was to say, you know, we'll take some risks. We'll do some things that we're not supposed to do. We're not comfortable doing. Um, you know, we're not supposed to be the people on these TV shows, but it's so bad. The notion that we're not going to pass climate policy, that we had to step out briefly and say, wait a second, if we do something weird, maybe this will draw the attention and spark the folks who do have more say who are in the seats of power to do something unusual, too, to get this done. So Saul Levin is a congressional staffer and coordinator of the Congressional Progressive Staff Association Climate Working Group, who helped to organize the Climate Emergency Direct Action in Senator Chuck Schumer's office, got arrested with five others, is also a congressional aide to uh, Congressmember Cory Bush. And I am wondering, Professor Stokes, how important was this action, do you think, and actions like these, um, the level of of activism, of congressional staff, not to mention Congress members, but the staff who've been putting enormous pressure to get climate action done. Yeah, of course, I know Saul Levin, and I really was heartened by the action that they took. You know, so many of us felt that despair when the negotiations fell apart. Uh, I certainly was crying, and several members of the staff and Congress were crying as well. And we weren't doing that for some kind of personal reason, you know, in terms of the work that people had put in. It was because we understood the stakes. The, you know, failure is not an option right now. We had 100 million Americans under extreme heat last week. And we're about to see those kinds of record temperatures across the country again today. We have 60 million Americans experience a one, experiencing a once in a 1200 year mega drought in the West right now. We're, we're seeing extreme flooding in Kentucky and Missouri. You know, this is just terrible. And we cannot just watch the climate crisis unfold like Saul was talking about and not actually do something about it. So there are so many people working in Congress, the staff that Saul just elevated, who have been working really hard 
That includes a number of staffers in uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's office who haven't even taken paternity leave when since they had small children. And, you know, I got to tell you, I came on your show exactly one year ago today and then I was in the hospital and then I had my own children, twins, and I have not gone on leave since then, really, because this climate bill is just too important. We have got to get it over the finish line. So I'm really grateful for all the folks working in Congress to get it over the finish line in the coming weeks. We just have 30 seconds. Um, I know you're in Michigan, Saul, but if you can talk about the climate protesters uh, who got arrested last night outside the congressional baseball game and fundraiser as they tried to block the entrance to the Nationals Park. I mean, this is happening at every level now. Absolutely. Well, I think you know, we were not coordinated with them, but I think at all levels, people are rising up and saying, you know, we need more climate justice investments immediately on an absolute emergency basis. As Leah mentioned, there's, you know, been heat waves all over the country that are unprecedented, other than the fact that they've happened in recent years as the climate crisis has escalated. Um, but, you know, the consistency between our protests and the protest at the baseball game is that people all over the world are rising up and saying, we're going to live through this and our leaders are not moving fast enough. We're hoping, you know, we're still looking at the details and hoping to move forward with climate policy this year. But this new package is not anywhere close to the level of funding that we need. This is not a Green New Deal or Build Back Better. And so people need to keep pushing and pushing for more, whatever ways they can. Well, I want to thank you both for being with us. The signs uh, that were held, Democrats seal the deal uh, and talking about a climate emergency at Nationals Park. So 11, congressional staffer for Congressmember Cory Bush and coordinator of the Congressional Progressive Staff Association Climate Working Group, one of six staffers arrested uh, in a climate emergency direct action in Senator Schumer's office. And Leah Stokes, associate professor of environmental politics at University of California. Santa Barbara, author of Short Circuiting Policy and co-host of the podcast, A Matter of Degrees. Next up, we look at two threats facing the nation's imprisoned population, intensifying heat waves and monkeypox. Stay with us. Back in 30 seconds. Every time you look outside your window, everything is just the same as before. You are turning round FKA Twigs. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Mimi Goodman. As tens of millions in the United States live under heat alerts this week, we look at conditions faced by those in prisons and jails. Here in New York, two city council members made an unannounced visit Monday to the Rikers Island prison complex and called it a hellhole. Tiffany Caban's district includes Rikers. And in a statement, she described, quote, New Yorker after New Yorker languishing in intake for day after day with no air conditioning in the middle of a severe heat wave and generally a persistent wave of what in the outside world would be seen as an emergency, taking a week or two to address inside the facility. 
in the Pacific Northwest. A heat wave pushed temperatures in some areas above 110 degrees Fahrenheit. This is an immigrant held at the Northwest Detention Center, run by the private prison company Geo Group in Tacoma, Washington, speaking to Maru Mora Villalpando of the Immigration Justice Group La Resistencia. Right now, it feels very hot, and the guards don't want to switch the hours. We go out to the yard. They take us out at 2, noon, 1, during the times when it's extremely hot. There's no shade, and they leave us out there for an hour. And when you go back inside, do the guards give you water? No, not at all. What if you ask them for water? There's a water fountain outside, but the water comes out very hot. If we want to take a shower or freshen up, the water in the bathrooms and the shower comes out boiling hot. This comes as a new report by the Texas Prison Community Advocates and the Hazard Reduction and Recovery Center at Texas A&M University finds 13 states do not have universal air conditioning in state prisons. This includes Texas, where most prisons are not fully air conditioned. One Texas prisoner described the environment of extreme heat and the COVID-19 pandemic as a living hell. For more, we're joined from Austin, Texas, by Kerry Blakinger, investigative reporter based in Texas, covering criminal justice and injustice for the Marshall Project, where she's their first formerly incarcerated reporter. We just interviewed her on her new memoir called Corrections in Inc. And she's been documenting conditions during this latest heat wave. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Kerry. What have you found? Um, one of the things that was different this year is that, first of all, Texas prisons are far more understaffed than they have been in the past. So some of the basic things that would be done to mitigate the heat in past years aren't available necessarily this year. There aren't necessarily enough staff on hand to be letting people out for showers as much or letting them outdoors as much or, you know, doing things like providing ice and things like that. So although heat has been an ongoing issue in Texas, uh, this year it's exacerbated by a staffing crisis that's been, you know, years in the making. So if you can talk about what that means, both when you don't have enough staff and uh, give us examples in different prisons. I mean, we're not talking about someone who can go take a cold shower whenever they want to. We're not talking about someone who can move from, th what, three-digit temperatures, um, over a 100-degree temperature, to a cooler place. These are incarcerated people. Right. And, you know, they're stuck in their cells. And it's been bad enough that this year I've actually had staff reaching out to me, um, giving me tips that their tip is simply that they're concerned about the prisoners. Um, there was one who called me the other day and said that, you know, she had a, she had this hot tip for me. And um, her tip was it's inhumane. Like that, that was it. She just wanted to say it was inhumane the way that the prisoners are being stuck in these conditions. And I know that when I'm asked about this, a lot of times I'll have people say, oh, well, there's a lot of schools that aren't air conditioned. Um, and obviously that's significantly different. And I think that when people think about incarcerated people in the context of heat, it's a lot of people like to just sort of blow that off as as if it's a frill, some extra offering. Um, to, to give people air conditioning. But um, it is deadly. People, 23 people have been documented to have died in Texas prisons since 1998 due to heat-related illnesses. And that's almost certainly an undercount. 
You tweeted this week about a facility in Gatesville, Texas, where the water went out for at least two days while the temperature, the air temperature, was over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Talk about this. Yeah, sure. Um, a lot of our prisons are aging and the infrastructure is aging, and some of them are in cities that don't have great infrastructure to begin with. So it's not uncommon for water to be going out in these facilities, but it's alarming when it happens during such a heat wave. And in Gatesville, um, the the water, the city had a water main problem. And so one of the prisons, um, Hughes unit, ended up with no water for um, about two days. And TDCJ, the, the Texas prison system, brought in water tankers and portable toilets and water. But this happens repeatedly. And every time that happens afterwards, you know, we hear uh, stories from incarcerated people about how they weren't able to actually get access to enough water or they weren't actually being let out uh, to use the toilets. Um, so, you know, this is a solution that's certainly better than nothing, but has still historically been problematic. And, you know, the other piece of it when you have a city water outage like that is that there's usually a boil water notice um, you know, during or after. And the other units in Gatesville, because there are several prisons in Gatesville, all had boil water notices, but no means to boil water. I wanted to bring in our other guest, Dr. Homer Venters, who is a physician, former chief medical officer for New York City's Correctional Health Services. In a moment, we're going to talk about monkeypox. But your response as you travel this country and investigate prisons on this issue of the heat wave— yeah, I think, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, thrilled to be on with both of you. Um, this is a, a drastically underappreciated problem. Um, and one of the most basic tools, which is to understand who are the heat-sensitive people who are in a jail or a prison or detention center, is almost never undertaken. So when it gets over 85 degrees in a living space, the risk of death uh, and serious illness from that high heat condition is different. Uh, but the medical staff, the medical services in these places know who are the people that are more likely to die or get sick. And they almost never identify people as being heat sensitive and focus on making sure they are okay, get them into air conditioned settings. So this is a problem all over the country as more and more places that historically don't have high heat days do and aren't prepared to take the mitigation efforts on top of the longstanding problems in places that uh, Carrie was just talking about. Well, I want to thank uh, Carrie Blakinger for being with us again. Her um, new book is called Corrections in Ink. She's the first formerly incarcerated uh, reporter at the Marshall Project. As we move from heat waves to the issue of monkeypox, yes, to the spread of monkeypox behind bars. On Thursday, New York's health commissioner declared monkeypox an imminent threat to public health amidst rising concern about increasing cases in the state and elsewhere. Monkeypox can be transmitted by close physical contact, and experts say it can also spread inside households and through contact while dancing or cuddling or by sharing contaminated clothes or bedding or even breathing the air. Symptoms include swollen lymph nodes, fever and muscle aches, and a bumpy rash with lesions that can last two to four weeks. Painful, painful lesions. This comes as the first case of monkeypox behind bars was reported in Chicago this week at the Cook County Jail. 
We're going to continue now with Dr. Homer Venters, a physician and former chief medical officer for New York City's Correctional Health Services. He's just written a new op-ed for The Hill that's headlined, CDC Must Act to Prevent Monkeypox Explosion in Prisons. Um, Dr. Venters, we last spoke to you about the COVID-19 pandemic in the prisons. Now talk about monkeypox. While you formerly were head of uh, health services at New York City's Correctional Health Services, we are now talking to you in Virginia, where you're investigating prisons and dealing with monkeypox. Yeah, I should say where I am now, <clears throat> there aren't any cases. But I think that my concern around the country is that uh, there are so many places, uh, especially the intake pens, the court pens, uh, solitary confinement where people are doubled or tripled up in cells, where there is a, a mandated forced close contact between humans uh, that involves skin-to-skin -skin contact, that if you looked at the part of the CDC recommendations that deal with raves and parties and social gatherings, uh, if you had one iota of experience or uh, even talked to a single incarcerated person, you would realize that same contact is happening thousands, tens of thousands of times every day in jails and prisons. Uh, I am worried that, you know, right now we have about 5,000 cases reported in this country, that that number could dramatically increase and the whole epidemiology of the American outbreak could shift in a direction that involves many more cases uh, among people who have justice involvement. So let's talk about the monkeypox vaccine, T-pox. I mean, the U.S. had the foresight to store millions, right, of these T-pox vaccines, which dealt with, and you can explain all of this, smallpox. What happened? Why are people lined up? This is outside of prisons uh, trying to get this vaccine and can't get it now, not to mention what's happening in prisons. Well, I think that, you know, even what you could see in New York City, my concern is that we're going to go down the same path of a real <clears throat> lack of equity in who gets access to these vaccines. Uh, inside prisons and jails and detention centers, one of my concerns is that there won't be adequate contact tracing to determine who just in a in a in a who in the post exposure scenario should be offered the vaccine uh, there will be obviously issues with trying to get access to vaccine for carceral settings that are always at the bottom of the list. But just this one technical tool of contact tracing uh, I found through about 40 or 50 COVID inspections. Often, uh, jails and prisons just don't do it. They just don't try and figure out who were the close contacts for these cases. Now, monkeypox, we would assume there will be fewer cases even when it gets into a facility. So we probably won't have 70, 80 percent of everybody in a prison getting it. We may have a smaller number of people, but it still requires a will to go find out who were the people who were in that court pen, that intake pen, that housing area. And that's where I have a lot of concern about just identifying who could, in a post-exposure scenario, um, be eligible. And then obviously there are people who are highly vulnerable that we know about today who should be eligible uh, in a preventive or pre-exposure uh, format. 
So there's something like 21,000-plus believed to be monkeypox cases in the world. Once again, like COVID, the U.S. has, um, what, something like a quarter of those cases, uh, 5,000 cases. Um, and then you have the prison population. Um, uh, Latinx and black Americans make up a pro- disproportionate share of the cases of monkeypox in the United States. And then within prisons, the black and Latinx population uh, is overwhelmingly um, disproportionately represented. So what does that mean inside prisons? Well, this means that the mass incarceration is one of the ways, obviously not the only way, but one of the ways in which uh, we have a system that produces inequity in all levels of health outcomes. And here we're talking about infections. Um, You know, the CDC and State Departments of Health have been essentially absent from both surveilling the health of people who are behind bars, but also promoting better health care for them, better health outcomes. And a lot of this comes down to a reluctance to measure the risk of incarceration. So Carrie was just talking about it, but incarceration creates health risks to individuals and to the communities and families around the places where people are held. And so here it's infections, but you know, the same could be said for sexual abuse. The same could be said for traumatic brain injury where people sustain them behind bars. Um, they go home with new traumatic brain injuries, but you don't see the CDC measuring or intervening in this health problem uh, the way they do with youth sports or with other health problems. So I I fear we're down the same path. We may get some quick fleeting involvement from the CDC and state DOHs with uh, the most acute response to uh, monkeypox in these settings, but no real intervention to say, you know, these places create health risks and we have to fundamentally change our approach to thinking about health and measuring the health risks of these places. So T-pox, the smallpox vaccine, the one that can deal with monkeypox has a major effect the minute you get it. The problem is getting it. Who are the lobbyists to get it into the prisons, considering there's such an overwhelmingly um, uh, there's such a shortage of it um, in the United States overall? And then what just tick off what are the most important actions the CDC and this country should take to ensure the health of the prison populations? Sure. So we do have because in. About a year and a half or two years ago, we went through the same set of discussions around the COVID vaccine. We do have advocates, uh, legal aid organizations, some parts of the public health uh, structure in this country that are ready to and are thinking about access to vaccines for incarcerated people. And so there, I think the pump was primed, even though we didn't get great outcomes always, with the need to go to governor's offices, to go to State Departments of Health and force uh, these questions about access. So I think we're actually in a better spot than we would have been without COVID. I think the CDC today needs to come up with, and I know they're working on it, um, guidelines for detention settings specific to them, but they need to be much more explicit. So these intake pens where you cram people together, where you're going to have transmission, they need to say explicitly, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't be putting 40 people into a small pen, having them sleep on the floor. They should also be explicit about things they avoided talking about before, like <clears throat> copay should be eliminated. People who have symptoms don't report them, either because they have to pay money uh, when they report these symptoms, especially in prisons, or 
they may go to a punitive setting. They may go to a solitary confinement, essentially. And so the CDC can be much more explicit. To do this, though, their guidelines have to be much more rooted in the actual experience of incarcerated people. So they need to talk to incarcerated people when they go to a tour, just like a state DOH. They can't walk in and take a manicured tour from jail administrators. They need to sit down and have confidential discussions with people who are living this experience. How many prisons and jails in this country? Uh, We have 3,000 jails, about 2,000 prisons, and another 2,000 juvenile detention uh, and immigration centers. So about 7,000 of these boxes. So if you think we have 5,000 cases in this country today, that number can dramatically increase. We have to leave it there. And I want to thank you, Dr. Homer Venters, for being with us, the former chief medical officer for New York City's Correctional Health Services. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.